Revelation 9.13 And the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel which had the trumpet, Loose the four angels which are bound in the great river Euphrates. And the four angels were loosed, which were prepared for an hour and a day and a month and a year to slay the third part of men. And the number of the army of the horsemen were 200,000 thousand. And I heard the number of them. And thus I saw the horses in the vision, and them that sat on them, having breastplates of fire and of jacinth and brimstone. And the heads of the horses were as the heads of lions, and out of their mouths issued fire and smoke and brimstone. By these three was a third part of men killed, by fire and by the smoke, and by the brimstone which issued out of their mouths, for their power is in their mouth. And in their tails, for their tails were like unto serpents, and had heads, and with them they do hurt. And the rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues, yet repented not the work of their hands, that they should not worship devils, and idols of gold, and silver, and brass, and stone, and of wood, which neither can see, nor hear, nor walk. Neither repented they of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their fornication, nor of their thefts. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, it's a privilege to be able to, uh, to read your word this morning and to be in this place. We ask this morning that as we, uh, as we uh, open up your word, that our hearts would be truly opened to it, that we would be ready to receive it and to, and to live by it, Lord. We ask that you would give us understanding and give me uh, the ability to be able to speak the right words. We pray now that all things that we do would be the, for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I had the privilege of spending a, a, a two, two nights, three days, up on, uh, up on Mount Hotham. For those of you who don't know, we've we, uh, got a contract up there. We've got about 30 to 40 people running around the mountain, cleaning accommodation and doing all that sort of stuff, which all sounds fantastic. Spent a couple of days up there, and uh, and we're talking about the sixth uh, trumpet here. I spent uh, I spent a night with uh, three other guys in the cabin, and uh, speaking of trumpets, I heard uh, a lot of trumpets that night. They were all going off at the same time all, all all night. It was a great orchestra we had going. And trumpets are normally a call to war in the in the Old Testament and in the New. Um, the, when the Israelites would blow the trumpet, it would be a call to war or it would be to announce some, some major thing. And uh, when I got off the mountain, I realised there were a lot of wars going on. You know, people say, I've been in the wars. Well, I realised there were wars going on on the mountain, off the mountain with a lot of people. And you know, when I came off the mountain, I realised there were other people that were having a lot of struggles and problems. And we speak about wars all the time and being in the wars and going through difficult times, but war is a very, it's a terrible thing. Tr uh, world war, the, the wars that this, uh, this uh, world has been in um, have literally killed millions and millions of people. As I did some research, um, I, uh, this website came up with the, the three great socialist leaders of our, of our age, Stalin, uh, Mao Zedong, uh, Chairman Mao and, uh, and uh, Hitler. 
and then it, it gave the result of their, their wonderful strategies. You know, 61 million people killed for him, for Stalin, uh, 40 million people killed with, uh, with, uh, with Mao, and uh, another 21, I think it was, uh, killed with, uh, through Hitler's interesting uh, expeditions. War is a, uh, is a terrible thing. And uh, this passage speaks about war. And it speaks about war that it's going to be different to all the other wars. It will kill more people than all the wars probably put together. And um, I remember when I was growing up, I used to have this, my favourite book was uh, this, this big white book. And it was about, um, about the atoms, how atoms work and about nuclear uh, fusion and fission and all that sort of stuff there. And I was so interested. In, and I had a chapter on, um, on uh, nuclear bombs. And there was, a little, there was a little slogan at the bottom of one of the pages when it was in that section. And it said, the next war will not determine... I remember this from when I was, I think, about eight years old. The next war will not determine what is right, but what is left. Because often people go to war over who's right and who's wrong. But the next war is not going to... Uh, they're saying the next world war will not really determine who is right and who is wrong, but what's left over because of nuclear power and nuclear bombs. And that's what we're talking about today. Just to recap, for those of you who missed last week or, uh, or who aren't up to speed with everything, last week we looked at the, the first part of this chapter... And we saw that the three woes of the last three trumpets coincided with the woe of Satan being cast down to the earth. We saw that there was a war that erupts in heaven between uh, Michael the archangel and Satan. And Satan and his demons are cast down to the earth. And when Satan is cast down to the earth with his angels, uh, there's a key that's involved. And do you remember what, what uh, that key opened? It opened the abyss. And out of that, that abyss came all these nasty angels, all these nasty fallen angels that had done terrible things that had been locked up in this place, ready for the judgment day or ready for this particular time to be loosed. And these angels represented the worst of the fallen angelic realm and they are turned loose during this time to cause havoc and pain on the inhabitants of the world. Remember the locusts? And these, these angels were pictured like locusts and they had the power to be able to sting people and cause them pain for five months. And pe the pain was so intense that people wanted to die, but they couldn't. Because God did not give the authority to those angels to be able to kill men, only to cause pain. We found out that their king, or the king over these uh, devils that came out, of, uh, uh, came out of the abyss, was none other than Satan himself, who was also called Abaddon or Apollyon, which, mean, which meant destroyer. And today we're now going to look at the second woe. So last week we looked at the first woe. This week we're going to see the second woe, and the end of this, the, to the end of chapter 9, we are looking at the, at the, uh, the sixth trumpet which continues Satan's terror upon the earth and the fact that uh, a great war is about to erupt. Let's, uh, let's go back to our passage. 
Verse 13 says, And the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. Interesting uh, sentence, that one there. He heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. What horns? And how were the horns speaking? Well, do you remember back in, I think it was chapter 5, remember when the, the saints were praying or the, or the, and they were saying, God, give us, give us justice. We want justice. And then we find, sorry, that was the fifth seal. And the sixth seal, God, then we see him starting to pour out uh, this judgment. Well, this is all part of the same ongoing judgment. And the altar represents the response of God to the prayers of those saints, to the, to the wickedness that is upon the earth. So the prayers of the saints are mentioned in the fifth seal. And then we see the sixth seal revealing the beginning judgments of God upon the earth, the time of Jacob's trouble, I believe. In like manner, we saw the angel which held the, the, the golden censer before the trumpets were blown. Remember, right at the beginning of the trumpets, the angel threw down the censer with the fire and the fire represented judgment upon the earth. God was now judging the earth. And we now have an altar of God commanding God's judgment to be continued in the form of the sixth trumpet. It's interesting to note that the Israelites had a, a trumpet called the Shafar, which was used to call people to war as a public declaration. And it was a ram's horn. They'd blow the ram's horn and, and it would say, get ready, we're off to battle. It was the same sort of horn that they used to... Remember that around Jericho's walls? They'd give a blast of the, of the ram's horn, that sort of thing there. The trumpet is literally the horn of a ram. Now, the altar, this golden altar, had four horns, you might say, or things that looked like horns at the, at the, at the corners. And it was the same setup as that in the, the one in the temple. The horns were a symbol of power and strength in biblical times. When the sacrifice was made, what they would do is they would dab some blood on the corners they would touch blood from the sacrifice on those four, on the horns. And that meant, or that signified, that the power and the blood was able to atone. The power, sorry, the power of the blood was able to atone for sins. In the same way, we see that Jesus has the power through his blood to, to atone for our sins. Psalm 18.2 says that Jesus is the horn of our salvation. Jesus has the power to forgive sins. Jesus has the power to save. So keep that in mind. We have a golden altar and the horns from that altar speak of the power and the response of God to, that, to the request of the saints. Verse 14. What does the horn tell or what does a trumpet do? Saying to the sixth angel which had the trumpet, loose the four angels which are bound in the great river Euphrates. And the four angels were loosed, which were prepared for an hour and a day and a month and a year for to slay the third part of men. Now, big question you, you, you hit when you, when you get to this particular point is, what are four angels doing 
bound, tied in the river Euphrates. What sort of angels are these? Are these good angels or bad angels? Well, there's no place in Scripture where God has ever bound a good angel. We don't find that. God does not bind his own angels that are good. God has always bound the bad angels. So we, we conclude that these four angels are another lot that has been bound during their disobedience. Just as the Lord had bound and chained those angels which were disobedient in the bottomless pit, we saw, in the fifth seal, in the fifth trumpet, so the Lord has bound these four specific angels in the Euphrates River, or under whatever it is, around there. These angels, these angels must have, from, their past, from our passage today, incredible power, and I think they're all also able to harness the power of the first group of angels, which were released from the bottomless pit. Verse 12 indicates that these four are released after the five months of torment of the first group. Because John says, after this. But now for a very different purpose. So what does releasing these four angels do? Well, the purpose of releasing these four angels is simply to kill the third part of mankind. Now, remember back in the, back in the seals, it spoke about that a quarter of men had already been killed. Well, if the tribulation week, we'll do, we'll do some numbers here. If the tribulation week, the last seven years, began with about six billion people, and the fourth seal says that, that a fourth of people, fourth of mankind was slain of the earth, that's how much? One and a half billion people were already dead as a result of that first war. That leaves four and a half billion. Now the Bible says that a third part of the leftovers were going to die. A third part is, once again, one and a half billion people. The combination of both judgments yields three billion people dead, which is half the initial number that entered the tribulation week. So by the end of the tribulation, over seven years, three billion people are going to die through wars which is an incredible number. Wars have never come close to killing that many people. And if you can imagine half of society dead, at least half of society dead, then you're, getting a, you're starting to get a picture of what it's going to be like. Now, it says that these angels, these four angels, are bound in the river Euphrates. Well, what's the significance of the Euphrates River? And it's called the Great Euphrates. Well, the, the, the Euphrates River is the largest river of Western Asia. It was one of the four chief principal rivers that flowed, goes going back to Genesis, that flowed out of the garden. It was the border to which God said that Israel would inherit the land to. Turn back to Genesis chapter 15, verse 18.
Genesis 15:18 says, "In the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, "Unto thy seed have I given this land from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates." So God had promised Israel this particular land, and the river Euphrates was the boundary to that land. Turn forward a, a couple of books to Deuteronomy, to a few books to Deuteronomy. Chapter 11. This promise is repeated here. Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 22 says, For if ye shall diligently keep all these commandments which I command you to do them, to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and to cleave unto him, then will the Lord drive out all these nations from before you and ye shall possess greater nations and mightier than yourselves. Every place whereon the soles of your feet shall tread shall be yours for the wilderness and Lebanon from the river from the river the river Euphrates even unto the uttermost sea shall your coast be. So from the river Euphrates all the way to the sea. This, when you look at a map of Israel now, it's huge, isn't it? No, it's a very thin little coastline um, country. But God had promised Israel a much bigger area. Now that, that, that size area will come into play when Jesus returns and claims that for Israel. Okay? That promise has not been fulfilled yet. That's one of those things that, that still needs to come to fruition. So God appointed Israel northeasterly boundary by the, by the Euphrates River. Now the Euphrates River starts in Turkey. Okay? It starts in the Armenian plateau of Turkey and it flows 1,700 miles through Syria, southern Iraq, and then it, what it does, it joins the Tigris River and it ends up in the Persian Gulf. Okay? So you've got a nice line that goes all the way down from Turkey all the way down to the Persian Gulf. Important thing to remember here, and I want you to keep this in mind as well, is that the, the Euphrates was regarded as the eastern limit of the Roman Empire. So it separated the east from the west. The Euphrates River was regarded as the eastern, most eastern point of the, of the great Roman Empire and it separated the eastern from the western. Okay, Now, let's just keep that in mind. Let's go to verse 16 now, chapter 9. Revelation 9.16 says, And the number of the army of the horsemen were 200,000,000. And I heard the number of them. How much is 200,000,000? 200 million. 200 million soldiers. Well, more, more, uh, more specifically, cavalry or soldiers riding upon these four angels are able to motivate, energise, possess, by whatever means, 
two, a 200 million man army. Now, this may not be one particular army or one particular country. This could be all the countries inspired to go to war. If this is a, a literal number, and I think it is a literal number, it would represent the greatest army ever assembled in history. And the number is difficult to imagine, but not difficult to achieve. And it would seem from the sixth vial that these, these 200 million horsemen come predominantly from the east. The CIA fact book Right? The CIA has got a special fact book which I keep under my pillow and I refer to every now and then. <laughs> In 2004, said that China alone had 200 million military fit men at its disposal. Not that it had a 200 million man army, but it had 200 million men who it could call upon who were fit for duty, for war. China, at the moment, has about a 20 million, 20 million soldiers on duty or in reserve. Already has 20 million. Either already in an army, active army, or ready to sign up, or ready to go. Is that, is that right, David? <laughs> Russia, just to give you an idea, Russia has... 48,000 armoured units. They're, they're vehicles with uh, guns and cannons and things. And a 17 million man army, either in active duty or in reserve. The USA has about 30,000 armoured units. And I'm not sure exactly how many, uh, uh, how many uh, active uh, soldiers are in reserve. But just to give you an idea, already there are China's already got 20 million ready to go if it needs them. Russia's already got 17 million ready to go. It's not a difficult thing to achieve 200 if Europe gets involved and other countries jump in as well. Do you remember what happened, going back to the beginning of this thing, what happened when the sixth trumpet was blown? It said the angels bound in the Euphrates are loosed to go and inspire an army of 200 million men. Now turn, turn forward with me to Revelation chapter 16 verse 12 which then gives us the fruition of this or, or the, the result of this particular uh, inspiration that these four angels achieve. This is the sixth vial we're talking about here. So we've just looked at the sixth trumpet. Now we're going to look forward to the sixth vial which is like the culmination of this sort of stuff. Okay? And the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great, which one? River Euphrates again. And the water thereof was dried up. And look what it says, that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are the spirits of devils working miracles which go forth unto the kings of the earth and the whole world to gather them to battle to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Okay. This is giving us the, 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 
the culmination of this thing. You see, these four angels are able to motivate 200 million man army and possess them, basically. Okay? Then we see the vo- what happens is, when the sixth vial is, is thrown into the river Euphrates, it dries up. So it prepares the way for them to be able to march directly in without any opposition. And it speaks about the kings of the east being prepared for this. Now, what did the spirits like frogs and all that sort of stuff have to do with it? Well, it says that these three frogs or spirits like frogs, one comes out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the uh, beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. And it says these ones go to the kings of the earth with miracles and signs and lying wonders and what they do is they convince them to join, the, to join this army, to join this great fight. These deceiving spirits fool all the world leaders through satanic miracles to prepare themselves and their 200 million armies for war. And those four angels possess those or, or use other angels to possess those men, energise them for that specific job. I believe it's a little bit like the Crusades where you had you know, the Pope on one side rounding up all these, stirring up all these individuals to go and go down to Jerusalem because the, the Muslims had taken it. And the Muslims on the other hand were doing the same thing. And they were constantly fighting over the same sort of thing. I believe that the wars, or this particular war that we're going to be looking at, will be something along those lines with, with very big religious reasons for it. And everyone's going to believe they're right. This is most likely going to be a war between East and West which is its focus is going to be right in Israel. The vial opens and, the, and this vast armies, all these vast armies ride in and, and go straight into Israel through that Euphrates uh, river. The door for this huge army to come up will literally be open to them with the drying up of the Euphrates river. Let's take a closer look at this particular army now. Let's go back to verse 17. Chapter 9, 17. Now, what sort of army is this? And thus I saw the horses in the vision, and them that sat on them, having breastplates of fire and of jacinth and brimstone, and the heads of the horses were as the heads of lions, and out of their mouths issued fire and smoke and brimstone. By these three were the third part of men killed. Now, these three are the fire, smoke and brimstone. Okay, that's the three that kills a third part of men by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which issued out of their mouths for their power is in their mouth and in their tails for their tails were like unto serpents and had heads and with them they do hurt now that's a rather an interesting uh, description though the riders are demonic it looks like in nature. Remember the, the, the breastplates of iron that it was talking about with the, uh, with the locusts? It's a very similar description. While the riders 
are, just, are probably demonic or men that are possessed by demons, it's the horses that John pays particular attention to, not the riders. The only thing it says about the riders is they have some sort of a fiery armour. Okay? But then it speaks, it gives, gives us a fairly big description about the horses themselves, the things that they're actually riding on, not the, not the actual riders themselves. Now, let me ask you a question. When men used to uh, ride horses into battle, who did the damage? The horse or the rider in days gone by? It was always the rider. The rider would either have, and even going back to only a few, few years ago, if someone was riding into battle on a horse, the horse never did any damage. The horse was only a vehicle to get the, the soldier into the, into the battle. The soldier would either have, going back, a, uh, a sword they would use to kill, or later on, guns and the like. So wherever there was a cavalry in old days, it was always the rider that killed. But look what it says here. It says the riders don't kill. It's the horses that kill. Now, I don't particularly believe these are, these are real horses. I don't think that these are real horses, only because of the same, the same reason that the locusts, I don't believe, are all locusts. The description given of them is, is too outlandish. It's, it's, it doesn't match up with what a horse or a locust does. Look what it says they have. They have heads like lions. Well, I don't know any horses that have heads like a lion. It says that fire, smoke and brimstone issue out of their mouths. I've seen steam come out of a horse's mouth and I've never seen fire, brimstone come out of a horse's mouth and smoke. And then it says that through their mouth, through the horse's mouth, they are able to kill a third of mankind. Well, Mr Ed might have bad breath, but it's not going to kill a third of mankind. And then it says that they have tails that were like serpents, and with those tails, they had heads like serpents, and they were able to hurt. Well, okay, once again, a horse's tail is not very harmful. Some have interpreted the description of, as John's understanding of a scene, which is like modern warfare. The heads of horses are compared to the heads of lions, and out of their mouth comes fire, smoke, and brimstone. This is comparable to modern instruments of war. John makes special mention of this fire, smoke and brimstone which issues out of their mouth. This is more of a picture of modern warfare than, than ancient warfare. In modern warfare, it's the vehicle that the soldier's riding in that does the damage, not the soldier himself. And if you look at every type of, of modern uh, warfare machinery, vehicle, it actually, it's, it's an interesting description and matches fairly well with it. Whether it's tanks, right, and tanks have the, the gun, it shoots. If, you see it, if you've ever seen a tank actually shoot, there's a nice big fireball that comes out of the end of it and it causes a whole heap of damage. Planes do the same thing. Planes have rockets that shoot forward, helicopters and the like. 
it would seem that nearly all modern warfare makes use of weapons which issue forth through gunpowder, fire and smoke. And I wonder whether a person from 2,000 years ago who was trying to explain maybe a picture of modern tanks, for instance, to us, would describe it very differently. His understanding of war was that, that, that men would be riding upon horses into war. Well, if he saw a man riding a tank or riding some other, some other thing, it would look as if he was riding a horse. It would be the closest description he'd have. It says that they, they issue explosives from their mouth. And if you look at... If you've ever seen a picture of a, of, a, of, a, of a tank, for instance, right? A tank has a, one big gun at the front, and it normally has also a machine gun turret at the top as well. So while, while the guys inside were, were loading the, 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 the actual main gun, there'd be a guy on top who'd have a, have a turret that goes around. Have you seen those guns? They're normally very long and black. They probably look like a snake. And out of that, that snake's mouth, issued bullets, which hurt, but not necessarily cause the same amount of destruction as the gun at the front. The same principles apply to all army helicopters, which have onboard missiles and machine guns. Now let's assume, I'm not going to tell you that that's exactly what it is. But to me, it would be—it's a fairly close description of what uh, of what modern warfare is all about. It says that through these particular weapons, that a third person, every third person that remains alive on planet Earth will be killed by these demonic horsemen, or more specifically, killed by their horses. So the entire world, so the entire wording of this judgment makes it clear that there's some sort of all-out war that is taking place and includes probably every type of weapon that man has. To achieve the destruction or the death of that many people would require probably nuclear weapons as well. But the Bible does say that a third of men were killed by the fire, the smoke and the brimstone. Let's have a look at what the result of a huge war killing a third of mankind has on the hearts of people that are left. Look at verse 20. And the rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues yet repented not of the works of their hands, that they should not worship devils and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and of wood, which neither can see nor hear nor walk, Neither repented they of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their fornications, nor of their thefts. In spite of the dramatic judgment inflicted by this invading military force or by this huge war, those who are left, unrepentant, no change in their hearts. Such is the hardness of the human heart that even though the the whole world is facing destruction, men don't turn away from evil and sin. In the face of death, 
Man does not change. And it's a clear testimony of, of man's, the, the, the condition of man's soul. They did not repent of their evil works. They didn't repent of worshipping devils or demons or worshipping idols, which neither can see nor hear nor walk. It would seem that uh, even in the midst of all this destruction and mayhem, people continue to turn to false gods, probably because the devil has them completely fooled. But Deuteronomy chapter 13 verse, verse 4 says, You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice, and ye shall serve him and cleave unto him. <clears throat> Turn with me to Matthew chapter 4 verse 8. This is what's going on in the background here. Matthew 4 verse 8 says, Again, the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them and saith unto him, All these things will I give thee if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Then saith Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan. For it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Stop there. Do you remember that scene? Jesus was in the wilderness. He was fairly weak. The devil used the opportunity to, to try and, and, and tempt him to sin. And this is the one, this is the big clincher that he was trying to, the, try, trying to get the knockout punch here. Jesus, if you worship me, I'm going to, I'll give you all the kingdoms of this world and everything this world has to offer. And Jesus refused. Yeah, one thing we learnt about Satan, that he repeats the same lies over and over again. The same lies that he repeated in the garden, he continues to, to, to repeat to man now. He used the same tactics because they work, mind you. He's not stupid. He knows they work. It didn't work on Jesus, but he knows they work in general. So when he deceives the world and he goes to the leaders of the world, the things he promises them are, you'll have power, you'll have all the kingdoms of this world. If you fight for me, if you worship me, I will give you everything. Unfortunately, the men of this world, the kings of this world, and the kingdoms of this world run after him and they believe it. And he manages to get them all to be killing each other. Second Corinthians chapter four, verse, chapter 4 verse 4 says, In whom the God of this world has blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. He has blinded at this stage, in the midst of all this destruction, he's blinded the minds of those who are left in this world to continue to follow him even right to the end when Jesus returns do you remember the sixth seal and, and, and how that finishes up <clears throat> when, the, when heaven's opened and they see the lamb ready to come down what do they do 
They don't repent. They go and they run and hide. There is no repentance there. At that point, there's, there's fear only because they haven't repented. And by that stage, it's too late. Despite the, the judgments of God, and, and think already of all the things that have happened on the earth. Think of all the destruction. Think of most of the world's being destroyed, the, the, the seas being corrupted, the, the third part of all the trees have been burnt up, all the grass has been burnt up. People have died with, uh, with poison waters. People have killed each other. With the half of the world gone, and they're still not repenting. They're still not reflecting on who they are and what they're meant to be here for. Right to the end, resistant, just as Satan is. Satan resists right to the end. And just a, a precursor, is just something in advance. During the thousand-year reign, Satan's locked up. But you know what happens after the thousand-year reign of Christ on this earth? When everything is, is beautiful and peaceful, and uh, he's let out and he deceives the world again. So what do these trumpets say to God's people today? If we look at this passage of Scripture, scripture some things become very clear. All right? And I'll give, give you three quick, three quick points to take away with you. God is in control. God is in control. He determines when and how judgment will come. If you look at God throughout the ages, you know when he had to discipline Israel, did he use, always, did he use good people to discipline or bad people? Bad. God is able to use the evil in the world to achieve his purposes. And he'll do that at exactly the right time and in his timing. And it's the same thing with these angels. They're loosed from the, uh, from the river Euphrates. It says they were prepared for a day, a month and a year. God's exact timing. God decides when he's going to release them. No one else. And even though they are going to cause great destruction in the world, and God knows exactly how many, he's told us how many people they're going to kill. God knows. It's in his timing. I think we take for granted too often how much God is probably working around us to restrain the evil in this world. We take that for granted. If man was allowed to be who he truly is, then we'd see Stalins and, and Mao's and, and Hitler's everywhere. People would be running riot. The, the reason this world is in some sort of order is only because God's spirit restrains the evil in this world. He holds it back. He can, he's able to contain it to some degree. And while he contains it, we're here. While God is containing, we're here. So we have the opportunity to be able to share the gospel. Because if this world was mayhem and with people killing, killing each other and doing all the stuff that we see over here, how easy would it be to spread the gospel? During this time, Christians are severely persecuted. Anyone with faith in Christ is probably going to lose their heads in quick time. God is in control. Our God is sovereign over all that is and all that is to come. You need to remember that. Nothing is outside of his control. Nothing. Point two, God's enemies will face his wrath. 
They may think today that they're spared from God's power. But one day, there's going to be no place to hide. They're going to seek literally the rocks. They were, they'd wish that rocks would fall on them and hide them. Those who persecute the people of God will face judgment and justice far more terrible than anything than they can do to us. Those who reject Jesus will learn that, that God and God's people win. And, verse, and uh, third point, we must be faithful now. We have to be faithful now. We can't, we can't wait for that day to come. We don't know when judgment will come. One day the Lord will return to this planet. And if he delays long enough, we'll go to him first. You and I have no, absolutely no idea when our last day is going to be, do we? I can't guarantee my life for tomorrow, your life for tomorrow, anyone's life for tomorrow, even today. As our, as our, our I'll call them fortunate, our fortunate friends over there in, uh, in Mount Hotham. Six of them, even seven, in a uh, large four-wheel drive, go to simply turn a corner. They don't notice the black ice on the edge. They hit the edge. The car loses it at the back. They hit the edge. The car then flips over, lands on its roof down an embankment. You're on a mountain. It could have been a cliff. And they, they all, it, it, the thing slides all the way down this, this embankment and hits a tree. I'll be lucky that the tree was there. Blessed the tree was there. Otherwise, they may have gone even more. If you look at the photos, and I'm, I'm happy to show you the photos, I've got it on my mobile phone. The roof of this thing, the, the what do they call that thing? The, the, the cage, the, sorry? The safety cell, or whatever. Uh, there's nothing left on top. I don't know how they actually survived. If you look at it, you only see the bottom part of the car. You don't see, uh, you don't see a, a roof over anymore. It's gone. How did seven guys manage to get out alive from that? I don't understand. But God is merciful. God is merciful. We must be ready now, though, all the time. Not only, not only is, is, is our uh, uh, life unknown, how long we're going to live, but the lives of those around us is unknown. Sometimes we want to assume that those around us are going to be around for a long time. We're going to have plenty of time to be able to witness to them, to talk to them, but their life is unknown too. They may not be here tomorrow. And we try to, when we talk to them, we tell them that. And we say, you don't know if you're going to be here tomorrow. Tomorrow could be, could be your last. But do we actually follow up on that? Do we actually believe that? Today, every one of us is one day closer to eternity, are we not? One day closer. So, we need to be encouraged but motivated. We need to be encouraged that God is in charge of this world, that our Father is in charge of the, this world, and if we belong to Christ, we are in His hands. And there's no one who can pluck, pluck us out of His hands. And one day we will be with Him safe forever.
but unfortunately the enemies of God will hear the trumpet sound and they will be judged and there will be no rest for them forever no rest forever I find it difficult to sleep for a couple of nights on top of a mountain because these guys were making a ruckus in that room how is it not having rest for eternity I can't imagine it no rest let nothing move you always give your fullest for the work of the Lord because everything we do for the Lord none is in vain let's remember that let's pray Heavenly Father, we, we do thank you once again for this opportunity. We thank you for the presence of your Spirit here today. We thank you, Lord, that even as we, as we read this material and, and, and our hearts are, uh, uh, melt, Lord, for those times which will come upon this earth and for the destruction and for the evil that will take place, Lord, we have our hope in you. And we have such a precious hope I pray that we would share it with those around us, but that people would not only hear it from our lips, but that they would see it in our lives. I pray that our lives would be so different that people would see the hope and the peace that we have, knowing that we are safe and secure in your hands. Lord, that we should not fear death, that we should not fear being rejected by those around us. Because the most important thing is you and your truth and your gospel being spread to this world. We might share the love of Jesus with those people around us. That they would indeed see Jesus living within us, as your scriptures say. That we would be transformed day by day more and more into his image. That we think day by day more like he thinks. And that we would do as he would do. Bless us now as we depart and have some time of fellowship, Lord. Watch over each and every one of us and use us for your glory. Watch over all those who aren't here with us today, especially our families and our friends. Give us opportunity to be able to share our faith with them. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.